poof, gone. 20% of your money vanished into thin air. If you only invest in stocks and bonds, that's what you're looking at, according to the geniuses at Goldman Sachs. They say real assets are key to salvaging those 20% losses. Real assets like contemporary art. That's right. The same kind of art you see on the walls of museums. This art has outpaced the S&P 500 by more than double for the last 26 years, and it performs even better than real estate and gold when inflation is this high. One company has even beaten those numbers. They're called Masterworks, and they've averaged a net return of 29% to investors from just six exits. Even through COVID, a bear market, and sky-high inflation, some of you early adopters who already signed up saw their exit in August for a 33.1% return. That's right, 33.1%. Obviously, with numbers like that, demand is surging and there is a wait list. But you can skip it just by going to masterworks.io slash sadtruth. That's masterworks.io slash sadtruth. See important regulation A disclosures at masterworks.io slash CD. That's masterworks.io slash sadtruth. Hi, everybody. This is uh, Gad Sad for the Sad Truth. I think today the guest that I have with me, Dr. Michael Shermer, is a three-peat. Is that right? Yeah, that could be. Yeah, that, that could be a three-peat, the returning in, champion. <laughs> in which case, you're either the most frequent guest so far, uh, although I think maybe Dave Rubin has also been three times. So you may, you're an illustrious <laughs> uh, lands with Dave Rubin. How you doing, Michael? I'm doing well, thank you. Okay, so let me uh, for the for the folks. I have to wear my glasses because apparently I'm getting old. Uh, you are the publisher and, uh, if I'm not mistaken, co-founder of Skeptic Magazine, which is still going strong. You're a presidential fellow at Chapman University in Southern California in Orange, Orange County. Host of the popular podcast, The Michael Shermer Show, of which I've been fortunate enough to be a guest, I think, on two occasions. Yeah, at least. Uh, right. Weekly columnist of the Skeptic Substack, which I think you started maybe about a year ago. Does that sound right? Mm-hmm, that's right. And then author of many books, several of which have hit the New York Times bestselling, uh, bestselling list, including Why People Believe Weird Things. The Believing Brain and the Moral Arc. Is that did I miss anything in that bio? Nope. That's it. We're good. All right. <laughs> so let me. <laughs> so this is this is the guy that you all should be getting next. This is the one right here. Uh conspiracy why the rational believe the irrational, which in a sense fits nicely with the, the parasitic mind. I'm 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 curious to see if there are some interesting overlaps. So let's start. What's the general synopsis? Why did you decide to write that book? Let's start it there. Yeah, well, I've been covering the conspiracy beat since we started the magazine in 92, because it's one of our kind of wheelhouse topics that comes up a lot. And but it's always been treated as pretty fringy, both in the media and in academia, like most academic um, scientists, social scientists don't consider the study of uh, conspiracy beliefs to be a serious topic until really maybe the last decade or so when it started to become a, an academic field. Um, so I summarize all that research in the book, but to me, it was always more mainstream. I mean, this is, you know, people act on their beliefs and people believe wrong things. And, and, and so, you know, from January 6th insurrection, all the way back to the militia 
attacks uh, in the 90s. And, you know, those sorts of things are all based on a kind of conspiracy thinking. And so I just decided to put it all together in one book. I felt it was important to, uh, at this moment in history, especially, you know, to show that, you know, people that believe conspiracy theories are not just tinfoil hat weirdos living in their parents' basements. I mean, the research shows that everybody believes at least one conspiracy. I mean, if you list off like the top 30 conspiracy theories, everybody believes at least one of them. And for good reason, that is a lot of them turn out to be true. <laughs> that is conspiracy theories that 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 uh, represent conspiracies that turn out to have been true, like Watergate or Iran-Contra, or I could rattle off a whole bunch. And uh, so it's reasonable for people my argument is that it's rational. There's a kind of rationality, kind of a a um, uh, a, a, a rational choice model in, in your field to assuming that uh, assume type one, make more type one errors, assume the uh, signal you think you've uh, detected is a true conspiracy, uh, as opposed to missing a true conspiracy that could harm you. But, well, uh, so two points. Number one, I mean, when you said that many conspiracies turn out to be true, I could think also of stereotypes would fit that model and that mm. stereotypes are oftentimes, oh, you know, we, we use that term pejoratively as though it is not a reflection of reality. Whereas, of course, stereotypes are ultimately rooted in some reality. It may not be a perfect representation of the world, but it certainly doesn't come out of thin air. So that's my I guess my first point. But second mm. one is. I was uh, perplexed when you began your 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 last answer that you said that there hadn't been much academic research uh, until the past 10 years. Why would that be the case? Because you would think that any breakdown of you know rational thinking, however way we define rationality, would be something that is within the wheelhouse of a very broad range of scientists and social scientists. So in your view, why has there been a lacuna in this area? I think probably because it was conspiracies were mostly covered by journalists or historians like a Douglas Hofstadter. Uh, no, no, not D Douglas Hofstadter. Sorry, um, oh, he's a he's a philosopher. Isn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Uh, the uh, you know the the paranoid style in in American politics. Okay. Anyway, I'm just spacing out on the name there. But you know th these were kind of speculations. There was no data collected until. Really well, maybe I should go back a little bit further, maybe 15 years, in which you know people actually conducted besides say Pew and Gallup that would ask people, uh, you know, wh which of these conspiracy theories do you believe? But no one did a, like a data analysis, like, well, which races are likely to believe this? Which political parties, liberals or or conservatives, are more likely to believe conspiracies or age? Or, you know, any other cohort you could, you know, that that data is typically collected on, like, say, the general social survey in which you have dozens of uh, demographic characteristics of people. And then you ask them various questions about what they believe. It wasn't really until, again, last 10 or 15 years that social scientists started looking at go, huh, I wonder who's more likely to believe conspiracy theories or not. So if you want to go through some of those, I mean, they're pretty interesting. Um, sure. You know, it's it's a co complicated uh entanglement of, of various causes as as is everything in social science as you know um that for example race is not a, a proxy for um general conspiracism but it does predict who's likely to to believe which conspiracy theory so famously african americans are more likely to believe that aids was planted in right. inner cities by the cia um and and most recently they were more likely to be vaccine hesitant and all this stems back to a real conspiracy which was the tuskegee exactly. you know, experiments and and other things that that's you know, the, the CIA, syphilis 
the syphilis stuff, right? Right. So these were um, um, men from uh, Tuskegee and, and uh, who had c- c- contracted syphilis and then could have been treated but weren't um, just to see what the effects were. It's a little bit like the Nazi yeah. experiments of, you know, let's use our prisoners to to see how high altitude uh, pilots will react uh, under pressure or cold or whatever. And then they just die. And that's what happened. So, you know, it's it's not unreasonable for African-Americans to be a little suspicious when the government says you should do this. Um, or then uh, uh, the flip side, whites are more likely to believe that the government is is conducting false flag operations as an excuse to uh, confiscate guns and and cancel the Second Amendment, that sort of thing, or building FEMA camps in Texas to imprison uh, uh, gun owners. This was a popular one during Obama's administration and Clinton's administration too. I've been hearing this since the '90s, and uh, you know, so so race by itself doesn't tell us much, but it it, it points to which conspiracy theories are more likely to be embraced. Now you, in, in the book, I mean, I just want to pull out my notes. You talk about three types of, uh, you know, a taxonomy of three types of conspiracies. If, if I got that right, proxy conspiracies, tribal conspiracies, and constructive conspiracies. Can you tell us about each? Yeah. So um, just to kind of put it the bigger picture, the, the specific things I were just talking about, like race or education or, uh, political orientation. These are all um, w- what we might think of as proximate causes right. of conspiracy beliefs. M- deeper would be more ultimate causes. That is, what's behind those? So I cate- cate- classified three different types. Proxy conspiracism is where uh, the particular conspiracy theory that you're interested in is actually a proxy for something deeper, some other deep concern about somebody has power or, you know, some agency or government uh, organization is up to no good, that sort of thing. So the Such first that- two, the first two, excuse me for interrupting you. The first two that you mentioned that the, the example with the, uh, the, the, the blacks versus the whites and the types of, would both of those be uh, classified yes. under proxy? Exactly. Yeah. Right. So it's such that if I if I show you, if I point out to an African-American that the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus vaccine was not designed to uh, harm black communities, they're still going to be suspicious for other reasons. Right. Or if you just take Pizzagate, which is a popular one, you know, that Hillary and the Democrats are running a secret satanic pedophile ring out of a pizzeria. Right. Right. Does anybody actually believe that? Well, one guy did, Edgar Welch. He went there yeah. with his AR-15 and, and shot up the place. No one was hurt. But he was quite surprised to find there, there was no basement there where this pedophile ring was going on, right? So he believed it. But even if I took, let's say you're a Hillary hater and you think, yeah, I think there's something to this Pizzagate thing. And I take you to the Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria and show you there's no basement here. There's no pedophile ring. It's not like you're going to go, oh, in that case, I'll vote for Hillary, right? You were never going to vote for Hillary. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and and so the the conspiracy theory itself, um, it, it, whether it's true or not, is beside the point. It's the kind of thing those Democrats would do. The Clintons are always up to no good. Wasn't there something in the 90s about the Clinton hit list and the body count? And I don't know. I don't know about these specifics, but I just don't like the uh, the Clintons or the Democrats. It's the kind of thing they would do. Right. So that's a proxy. And, you know, my type specimen in that was the OJ trial. You know, OJ was acquitted. On a conspiracy theory that the police planted the evidence, yeah. they planted the bloody glove and the bl- blood splatter and so forth. And the fact is that if you, so I referenced this documentary from ESPN called OJ in America. 
and it really tracks the movement of African-Americans to the Southern California, LA area after the Second World War and the tensions uh, between them and the police. And it was bad, really bad in the 60s. Police really did plant evidence against blacks. They really did mistreat them. So by the time you get to the 90s and you have this trial and it's like, it's completely rational for a mostly African-American jury to think, yeah, that is the kind of thing the LAPD would do. Even if they didn't do it in that particular case, and maybe that Mark Furman guy was a racist asshole, but but we know they do those sorts of things, right? So it's a stand-in, a proxy for something deeper that concerns somebody. And then uh, let's see, the second one, a tribal conspiracism. There's a lot of overlap here, but it's that a conspiracy is a stand-in for something that represents our tribe, our political tribe, you know, the rigged election or on the other side, you know, just whatever it is that liberals are concerned about that conservatives are doing. It's it's and And most people don't know that much about the details of a conspiracy theory or even how they would check it to see if it was true. Like, um, and I wouldn't even know who to call in Arizona to find out if the election was rigged at that particular precinct, you know, election precinct or something. So, but I trust my tribe. And when, when the boss says, you know, rigged, I think, well, okay, it probably was, you know, cause that's what my tribe believes. Right. <laughs> so there's a lot of that. And then the third one though, is really an acknowledgement of how, of, of what I started off with the type one error. Constructive conservative conspiracism is that it's kind of a constructive paranoia. That is enough conspiracy theories turn out to be true that it, it actually pays to be a little suspicious just in case, because you're, because it's a low cost error to make to assume a conspiracy theory is true when it's not type one error. And it's a more costly mistake to miss a real yeah. conspiracy, right? And so there I have an evolutionary model that you'll appreciate that, you know, in our evolutionary history, coalitions between groups or within between people within groups was very common. You know, people gossip about each other. They plot in secret to do things to gain access to resources or sex or power of any, any kind status. And people really do do this. Right. And there's kind of a logic to it. Right. And uh, so it it really makes a lot of sense. It's rational to be a little paranoid just in case. Right. Well, it, 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 I was I was delighted when I was uh, I, I must admit, I haven't read the book yet cover to cover, but I was kind of perusing through it. And I saw your section on, uh, you know, the evolutionary origins of conspiratorial thinking. I was delighted to see that. I think in addition to your you know coalitional model that that has, of course, uh, a basis in evolutionary thinking. Uh, are you you must be familiar with error management theory, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what would it wouldn't that be a perfect application mm -hmm. of the type of stuff you talk about, type one and type two? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Per perfect. And if you yeah. want to riff on error management theory, I, yeah, there's different ways at it, but I like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh okay, so so there are these different types of uh conspiracies. Do we have a sense? Is there any empirical data that says, you know? X percentage of conspiracies turn out to be true. Do we have that number? Is it 10%? Is it 50%? Is there such a number or we don't no, know? No, there's no, no, that would be hard to quantify because it depends on what constitutes a conspiracy theory. And there's just literally hundreds or thousands of them. And, you know, if you go out way out on the fringes of the Alex Jones, you know, everything is a conspiracy. And if everything is a conspiracy, then nothing is. Right, right. So it's hard to operationally define it. But, you know, when I say enough, I mean, like, a, you know, a significant two digit percentage of conspiracy theories have, if not true, they have some element of truth. Again, 
you know, if you say, well, the CIA is planting uh, crack cocaine in black inner city uh, to corrupt the black community, something like that. And you think, well, okay, that's probably not true. Or you look into it and you can't find much evidence. But then you look at something like um, uh, Project MK Ultra, in which the CIA was dosing American citizens and sometimes their own employees with LSD and other mind altering drugs to see what the effects would be on mind control. So the, the fear in the 50s was not only is there a missile gap between the US and the Soviet Union, but that there's a a, a kind of mind control gap and that the, the Russians, Chinese and North Koreans were ahead of us on this and, you know, brainwashing and, you know, we got to get in on this. And the CIA was actually setting up like uh, hotel rooms and as brothels and then paying these prostitutes to have sex with these guys who they would then dose with different kinds of drugs to see what the effects would be. And right. they're in there with their cameras and they're it's like, wait, the CIA was doing this. This is insane. <laughs> right. And uh, or, you know, the, uh, you know, coin coin tell probe, which was the um, counterintelligence program that the CIA ran from 1956 to 1971, in which they planted agents in social justice movements, the American Indian movement, feminist, various feminist groups, the Black Panthers, you know, and they would come in there dressed up like hippies or whatever they were supposed right. to look like, you know, and it's some it's some G man with his wingtips on and he forgot to take off. There's a funny story about that. Like the guys are going, dude, we know you're a plant. Right. And, and so the fact that the CIA has done things like that, it's not unreasonable or irrational for people to think, yeah, you know, there's an element of truth. Again, back to the proxy, even if that particular one planning crack cocaine is but even there, I mean, there's some threads that there was some connections there, maybe with moving drugs around. The CIA may have been involved. And so it's hard to quantify to answer your question exactly the percentage. But an element of truth is in most of these kind of conspiracy theories. I mean, you mentioned stereotyping. You know, if you look at the history of anti-Semitism, in part, you know, Jews were excluded from most professions in Europe, right? So they migrated to things that they could do, for example, finance and being, yeah. you know, the middleman between people who need money, people that have money. So we're going to lend the money. You have to charge some interest on it. And then all of a sudden usury and the Jews are manipulating the financial system. And, oh, look, they're migrating toward running financial system and banks. And bleh. well, they kind of got forced to do that because of anti-Semitism. And now you're saying anti-Semitism even more. It's a kind of stereotype, again, with a little bit of element of historical accuracy to it that then gets converted into a conspiracy theory. Very interesting. I mean, as you're speaking, of course, I'm listening to every syllable you're saying, but I'm thinking of all these research questions that pop up of things that one can study. So here's one that popped up. Could it be that the how elaborate a conspiracy is in, in part determines how likely it is to spread? So for example, if if the so I'm thinking here of kind of a mimetic model, right? So some mm. things are more viral and there is mm -hmm. an inherent structure as to why this particular juicy nugget is more likely to spread through a network than this other less juicy nugget. So all other things equal, I would expect that a conspiracy that is not so fantastical, that involves maybe fewer individuals, would all other things equal be more digestible and so more likely to spread? Is there any such research that looks at the content of a conspiracy and hence how likely it is to spread or fall flat on its face? Yeah, I think you know your, your research in the parasitic mind 
uh, nicely explained some of this, this kind of contagion nature uh, of certain um, conspiracy theories that fit a narrative. Just just take the simple one that we're going through right now with the uh, ki kitty litter boxes for children that uh, identify as cats in in schools, right? You know, this story got you know got legs and and and, and spread you know within hours around the internet. And, and of course, to a, a conservative ear, this is the kind of thing, one of these libtard, progressive, woke schools that don't believe in biological sex and so on would do, right? right. It turns out, as far as I know, you know, no one has kitty litter boxes in any schools anywhere, but it was the, like an urban legend. You know, a right. friend of a friend told me, and then they told their friend, and before you know it, it's it spreads. That's kind of classic urban legend stuff. But it spreads because of the narrative. It, it makes sense. It's the kind of thing that we want to be true. And if you want to flip it, uh, you know, the Kyle Rittenhouse story, you know, that fit a certain narrative or any of the, you know, police brutalities against black stories that don't pan out. Uh, they fit a narrative. So they spread very quickly. And, and whether that's a conspiracy theory or not exactly depends on, you know, how you define these things. But yeah, for sure. Um, and then so just to you know, kind of riff on that a little bit more, there's research on uh, the proportionality bias. That is to say, we want kind of an equal uh, proportion between cause and effect. Um, so if I have a big effect, I, I expect a big cause. So, you know, the Holocaust, the worst thing, one of the worst things in the history of humanity. And what was the cause of this? The Nazi regime, one of the worst political regimes in human history. There's kind of a balance there, right? Uh, but so if you take something like uh, JFK assassination, well, I mean, come on. You mean the leader of the free world, this handsome, articulate, powerful man got taken out by who? Lee Harvey Oswald, nice. some lone nut? You know, so you have this kind of discordance there. So you got to add the CIA and the FBI and the KGB and the Cubans and the Russians and the mafia and pretty soon. And now that feels more balanced, right? That proportional. Or Princess Diana, cause of death, drunk driving, speeding, no seatbelt. But princesses are not supposed to die the way the rest of us do. You know, 40,000 people a year on American highways from those causes right you know so there's there's even interesting research like where you construct different conspiracy theories that are just made up for subjects and they read them and they have these different variations and they follow that pattern or even if you take something really simple like you give a subject a pair of dice or just one die and say try to roll a low number and they'll they'll kind of throw it just very gently now try to roll a five or a six and they'll really throw it hard <laughs> it's almost like because of kind of a folk physics right a, yes. a, a big stone you have to really heave with all your muscle to get it out there but a little stone you can just kind of bleep, right so there's there's from physics to psychology you know kind of that folk sense that there should be these sort of equal causes so proportional um, conspiracy theories are more contagious because they, you know, just feels intuitively like there should be a huge, massive cover up behind this big thing. 9-11. You're telling this is what I hear. Nine, you're telling me 19 guys with box cutters did this incredibly huge, massive thing. Yeah. In a free society, that's the only way they could get away with it. Right. Wow. They're invisible. Right. You know, but no, that doesn't feel right. So it had to be the Bush administration and the explosive devices, and they planted them in there, and the intentional, uh, you know, demolition and the this and that, and all of a sudden you've got all these elements, and it feels like okay, that's more. Balanced. I love that. What a what a brilliant insight. So has that? What did you call it? The proportionality effect. Proportionality bias. Yeah, bias. It, it, that's a mechanism that is specific to explain conspir conspiracy construction. Correct. Right. There, there is an inequity. And the larger that inequity, the bigger the conspiracy thinking that I need to to fill that gap or that hole. Correct? Right. 
Has, just, has that been just theorized or has no there no no been... there's there's research on this yeah oh that is fun. so who yeah. who would be the typical is it is it usually psychologists who are studying this yes. behavior? okay now it is yeah yeah it, yeah a lot of psychologists are now studying conspiracy so the, 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 I, the first half of my book summarizes most of that uh, research but just as a counterfactual just think about why are there no conspiracy theories about uh hinkley shooting reagan well, Reagan didn't die. So it wasn't, a, I mean, it was a big event at the time, but it, you know, it didn't change the course of history like the JFK assassination is alleged to have done. And, you know, it just feels like, well, he was just a mentally ill guy. He wanted to impress Joni Foster. Yeah, that's the kind of thing a nut job would do. Right. Right. Shoot at the president and miss. Or if 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 it wasn't, if JFK hadn't been assassinated, let's say he had missed, right? And it was just ricocheted off the car and you know, something like, or somebody was wounded on the grassy knoll or something, there'd be no conspiracy theories about it. Or if it was like, I don't know, the, the mayor of of uh, Dallas was uh, gunned down in Dealey Plaza, would there be an industry of books and films for decades about the assassination of the mayor? No, no one would care, right? There would be no attempt to, you know, the grassy knoll and the photograph of the blurry smoke, maybe in the shadows of the bushes. It could be, I think I see somebody in... There'd be nothing like that because there's no sense of pr proportionality there. Amazing. And so earlier you mentioned, uh, you know, rational choice theory and all, and behavioral decision making, which of course is, is was the area of my doctoral dissertation. But in when you're studying, say, a la Kahneman and Tversky, uh, contrasting Homo economicus to how people actually make decisions, there are specific axioms that i can use to say this is rational or irrational in the in the constrained sense of that term within an axiomatic system so for example the transitivity hypothesis is you know if i prefer car a to car b and i prefer car b to car c then i must prefer car a to car c if not i'm being intransitive in my preferences mm. therefore i'm being irrational so of course conspiratorial thinking which obviously involves a lot more fuzziness and, and and grayness in the world. It's not as clear as a mathematical axiom. Is there a way to parametrize, you know, this would constitutes veridical thinking in this domain, and this is the tipping point at which we enter conspiracies? How do we draw the line between someone mm. who is thinking in an ordered fashion versus he's going into Alex Jones land? Yeah, right. So it's a signal detection problem. Right. You know, so here I apply a signal detection theory. Uh, you know, so you have conspiracy theories that are true and you identify them as such. So that's good. That's a hit. And conspiracy theories that are true and you fail to recognize them. So that's your type two error. Conspiracy theories that are false and you assume they're true. That's a type one error. And then the fourth one. And so the so my criteria for like a baloney, dete baloney detection kit, or in this case, the conspiracy detection kit is... The more people that have to be involved, the more elements that have to be in, uh, involved, and the more the more elements that have to come together at just the right perfect timing for this thing to be pulled off. The grander, the bigger the conspiracy theory. These are all signs that it's probably a false conspiracy theory. Right. And so, what basically in those chapters I'm explaining, you know, here's there's no perfect algorithm that applies to all conspiracy theories because right. they're so different. But again, this, you know, the more people that have to be involved because people are incompetent, people can't keep their mouth shut. Uh, you know, if 9-11 really happened as an inside job from the Bush administration, you'd had to have at least hundreds, if not thousands of people involved. Not We know how people uh, 
react when they leave the administration. They write books, they tell all stories, they go on Oprah, whatever they go on shows like yours and go, hey, I've got a story for you, Gad. I was dating this guy and he was one of the guys that planted the bombs in the World Trade Center building. And I'm now, and we broke up and I don't like this guy and I'm going to write a book, <laughs> right? right. You know, that happens all the time and nothing like that has happened with 9-11 or, you know, in terms of negative evidence, you know, with WikiLeaks, you know, millions of leaked classified documents, not one about 9-11 as an inside job, not one about the moon landing being faked or, you know, any of these other conspiracy theories. But that and only supports how powerful the conspirators <laughs> are, right? It, right? it doesn't it doesn't serve you to stop and think that maybe you're off base. It only solidifies your position about the conspiracy being so powerful. My favorite joke I repeat in the in the books, not mine, uh, that uh, this pious man dies and goes to heaven. He's a big conspiracy theorist. And and God says, son, you've been such a, a pious man. I will grant you uh, a true answer to any question you have. And he says, OK, who really shot JFK? And God <laughs> says, Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone with his uh, Manlicker Carcano rifle. And the guy goes, this goes even higher than I thought. <laughs> Very nice. Exactly. That's that's my point. Uh, okay. Right. So I think, yeah, you know, to answer your question, I think it's uh, most people don't think rationally along those lines. I mean, this is one of the things that Kahneman and Tversky point out that we're irrational. Although, so here I would invoke Gerd Gingerinzer, who pointed out that I think correctly that Kahneman and Tversky's research was so abstract for most people that it was, they, they didn't notice that there was an intransigence, for example. But if you reconstruct the thought problems in simpler or more ecologically sound, you know, just involving people like the famous Wasson test. Well, I was just going to say exactly that, right? That's exactly the, yes. Yeah. So if you, if you construct it as, you know, you're a bartender and who should you card in a bar, you know, and then people mostly get that right. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and also people are, are not, the other thing both of them point out, Kahneman, Tversky, and, and Gingerinzer, is that we're not inclined to try to falsify our hypotheses. So one of the other famous tests that Wasson did was give subjects a sequence of numbers and ask them if they can figure out what the rule is, and then uh, give examples of what the rule might in, it, it suggest. So the first sequence is two, four, six. So people think, okay, uh, let me try eight, 10, 12. He goes, yep, that's correct. Ooh, I think I got it. 20, 22, 24. Yes, that's correct. Okay, one more. 58, 60, 62. Yes, that's correct. Okay, the rule is increasing numbers by two. No. What? <laughs> Why didn't anybody say one, two, three, or 13, 19, 28? And then, then it would have been, yes, that, that, that meets the rule. Anyway, the point Watson was making is that no one tried to falsify their hypothesis. Right. They just try to confirm it. So the confirmation bias. Well, that's the case with conspiracy theories, right? The moment you have one, you know, the Jews are doing this. Okay. Oh, I just read a story about some Jew that's running something and I didn't, yeah. Okay. That's more evidence. You know, what about the, the counterfactuals? What are these companies that are not run by Jews or Jews that are not running media companies or whatever, right? No, no one tries to falsify their yeah. hypothesis for whatever reason. And maybe you want to ring in on this because I, I don't sure we know the answer that you know why it is we evolved this tendency to not want to falsify our so hypothesis there is a theory that i was thinking about uh it's it's not mine it comes from a book that i briefly cite 
I think in chapter seven of the parasitic mind. And actually, let me look for it while you're here. Oh, here it is. It's this guy. Are you are you familiar with this book? Oh yes, the Enigma of Reason. Yeah, Hugo Mercier. Yeah, Dan Sperber. Yeah, those are great. So Hugo yeah. Mercier and and Dan Sperber, what they argued in their book, yeah. and yeah. hence why I mentioned it in chapter seven of my book, where I'm talking about how to seek truth. They argued that we did not evolve the reason capacity to pursue some domain general truth, but rather we evolved the capacity to reason to win arguments. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I think I would piggyback on that explanation and apply it in your conspiratorial model, which is I have a particular worldview. There isn't some sort of deontological pursuit of truth that I care about. I care to validate my worldview and therefore any dots that I need to put together and cook cook up, I will do to prove that I was right. The Jews are li lizard people or whatever. And so do you think that that might be? Yeah, I, I, I do. I, th I think that's, well, that's probably under my tribal conspiracism yeah, exactly. uh, heuristic. Um, I do cite Hugo, Hugo Mercier's his book after that one. I forget the title now. Um, but he, he points out in terms of like, do people really believe that? What does it mean when you say they believe a conspiracy theory? Now, most people don't really believe the Pizzagate thing, like they believe in, I don't know, the germ theory of disease or right. the Big Bang or whatever. That's something that's super obvious you know, objects fall, uh, they don't rise because of gravity, whatever. Um, but, but so when somebody says, yeah, I, I believe this is where I get this idea of a kind of a proxy. It's the kind of thing the Democrats would do. It's a more general belief, almost like a mythological truth or a political truth. I've been toying with this idea since I've been reading Jordan Peterson and, you know, empirical truths are in a different category, I think, than political truths or religious truths. As you know, Jordan's hard to pin down on whether he really yeah. thinks Jesus was resurrected as the <laughs> Messiah. He turns into a postmodernist when he answers that question. <laughs> exactly right. Well, it's mythologically true. Well, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. But I think a lot of us hold those kind of beliefs. This is Mercier's point, is that um, people just make assumptions just to survive, right? I mean, right. you just kind of you take it on faith or I don't know what experience that, you know, the money in my bank will be there tomorrow. The economy is not going to collapse. Except know, if kid... you live in Lebanon, the <laughs> yeah, money right. won't be there. In right. The bank. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, I think when somebody says they think the election was rigged 2020, uh, now, you know, these, these hearings have, have, uh, revealed that most of the top GOP leaders did not believe this. They just went along with it because, you know, the boss said so, and they didn't want to get denounced by Trump. Uh, you know, and so how do we know what's true? Again, back to this point I was making, like, I wouldn't even know who to call in Arizona. Like if you, if you showed me a video, oh, look, here's this grainy video shot at three in the morning of this truck pulling into the back of this building. And they have these boxes of ballots. Like, how am I going to know what that really means? So we, you know, we have kind of a trust in our system that works. And when someone like uh, Attorney General Bill Barr appointed by Trump, lifelong Republican, with all the power and resources of the Department of Justice says, we looked into it. There's nothing there. You know, now, is it faith that I say, yeah, I accept that? Not really faith. It's just that I can't check most things. Most of us can't check most of what, you know, climate science, the, you know, the scientists tell me global warming is real and human caused. Okay. I'm not a climate scientist, but usually the system works pretty well. Scientists get it wrong sometimes. Yeah. But most of the time, that kind of convergence of evidence from multiple lines of inquiry where you get a consensus after decades of research, 
it's probably true, reasonably true. It's theory of evolution, not likely to be debunked at this point, right? So I can, you know, even if I don't know anything about it, and as you know, most people don't, if you, yeah. even people that say I accept uh, Darwinian natural selection evolution, well, what is it? They can't explain what it is. They they have some kind of Lamarckian thing. Well, the giraffe stretch its neck and then the babies have longer. No, that's not it. <laughs> right. But they accept it anyway because, well, you know, scientists usually get it right. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned in the book, uh, I think, that uh, education was one inoculation against the proclivity to engage in conspiracy theories, which kind of had my ears perked because in the parasitic mind, I argue that the the spawners, the originators of, of all of the idea pathogens that I cover in the book are actually the most educated people. They're called professors. And so in, in your model, how is it that there is that inoculation mechanism? So, so, so question one, so explain that. But question two, are there other predictors other than education, they could be demographic variables or other variables, personality traits, and we can talk yeah, about that, yeah. that serve as predictors of me being more or less likely to succumb to conspiratorial thinking. Yeah. So here we're, we're back in the realm of prox proximate causes of conspiracism and education is, does attenuate general conspiracism a little, like if you have a bachelor's degree versus a high school diploma or a graduate degree versus a bachelor's degree, the, the overall number of boxes that you tick on a survey of conspiracy theories goes down a little bit, but not by much. I mean, to fit what you were just saying uh, is that, um, you know, the smart people that you're identifying in your book, these are specific subjects yeah. that they're, you know, so these professors are. So this is, you know, why why do why do smart people believe weird things? Because they're really good at rationalizing and justifying beliefs they arrived at for non-smart reasons. Right. Right. They hold these theories. You know, there's no such thing as biological sex. You know, a, you know, a trans woman is a biological woman. No, that's not that's incorrect. But in, the, you know, in their mind, they could come up with, you know, half a dozen really smart sounding arguments. Right. Yeah. To pick a, a current example. But um, but it, but, you know, I've engaged with a lot of like JFK conspiracy theorists, 9-11 truthers, even flat earthers. They all have pretty good arguments. They're, these are not dumb people. Right. So on average, uh, education ma matters a little bit. There's a few other factors. Um, to what extent uh, you're a little on the paranoid side versus, you know, more gullible side or say skeptical versus gullible. You're you know, more or less likely to believe conspiracy theories. But again, almost everybody ticks at least one of the boxes. And then another interesting effect, one of the most interesting papers I read researching this book was uh, called Dead and Alive. And it was uh, by a couple of social scientists that discovered that people that ticked the box in this particular case for the assassination of Princess Diana were also more likely to tick the box that she faked her death and she's still alive somewhere. Her and Dodie Fayed are off in Argentina yeah. with Elvis and Marilyn Monroe or something, right? <laughs> wow. Uh, so, I mean, first of all, there is this kind of resurrection of the king thing. They're still alive somewhere uh, that people can't seem to get past. Uh, but the, the point of this research was to show there's something underlying the whole thing, kind of a global distrust of authorities of all kinds so if somebody tells me she was uh you know she was murdered yeah that's that makes sense because i don't trust the royal family somebody says she faked her death yeah that, that kind of makes sense too you know there's this kind of whatever the, the the authorities say you know 
you know, the 9-11 commission said that Al-Qaeda did it. Yeah, well, you know, these commissions, they cover things up. And, and again, back to the el little element of truth, there was some things in there about the U.S. policies with Saudi Arabia and the funding of some of these Al-Qaeda operatives. It's not clear where that money came from and to what extent the CIA knew that some of this funding was going on, that they didn't know exactly what was going to happen and so on. But there's still kind of an element there that, that makes people suspicious, right? So that there's some uh, uh, some elements there. And then finally, um, being in, put in a position of feeling uncertain or anxious, the research, quite a, quite a bit of corroborative research on this with leading to more conspiracism. So you just put subjects, you know, imagine yourself a, a time in your life, remember a time in your life when you were anxious, felt out of control and so on. Now, which of these conspiracies do you think is true or whatever? Or th this was an illusory pattern. So you have these kind of random dots mixed up with other little random dots that formed something like a little planet or a hat or a fish or whatever. And then, so, so you have total randomness and then some fuzzy images. Everybody gets the fuzzy images correct. But the people that are in the position of feeling anxious, out of control, so, you know, so external locus of control, I, right. I, I have no say in my life. They're more likely to see illusory patterns. That is, you know, patternicity, images in the blobs that aren't really there. And they're more likely to think at work that there's something going on why I didn't get the raise and that guy did, or that, you know, I didn't get the promotion and that person <laughs> did. They're more likely to think those kinds of things go on. As you were saying the fuzzy patterns, I, I couldn't help but think about the Rorschach ink blot test. I wonder if that would be kind of a resurrection of this old psychoanalytic approach to some of these studies. But do you know if that I was like you? that? Yeah, it's yeah. pretty cool, right? Yeah, uh, somebody should do that, actually, and conspiracism. <laughs> there you yeah. go. Uh, so is there are there any beneficial downstream effects, possibly in other domains of people who score high on conspiratorial thinking? And so let, let me let me explain yeah. what I mean by that. So if you are autistic, right, that's a that's something that's going to hold you back in many domains. Yet there are particular trajectories that you can take where you as an autistic person, you do better on those tasks than people who were not autistic. So to the extent that we could say mm. it is beneficial, in that case, we found at least one trajectory by which, you know, you could say. I'm lucky to be autistic as a matter of speaking. Interesting. So is yeah. there, so, and I have an answer, but I don't want to uh, spoil what you might say. So I'll first turn it over to you and then I'll offer sort of my first top of mind idea of something that could be worthy of testing, but go ahead. Yeah. So, yeah, that's really interesting because, um, you know, Jeffrey Miller points out that autistic thinking may be more of a cognitive diversity style that has benefits. Now, obviously, they're in this case, they're talking about people like maybe Temple Grandin, pretty high right. functioning autistic, because that's such a wide spectrum. But I like that idea that, you know, that if we applied it to conspiracism, it's possible that, you know, somebody like on the cognitive diversity scale, let's put it like that, might see things that you and I would miss. Exactly. Uh, well, so to that point, so you're, you're getting yeah. to what I was thinking, which is, uh, I can't remember if in the creativity literature it's called divergent thinking, right? So the idea mm. is that oftentimes it requires out-of-the-box thinking to connect dots to solve problems creatively, which the typical specialist would have missed. So mm. there might be an element of creativity. 
I mean, part of it might be paranoia. That's the negative end of it. But part of it might be that those folks are inherently creative in being able to weave such an elaborate story, whereas more linear thinker, thinkers, quote, rational thinkers would 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 miss these things. So I, I almost feel as though there has to be an element of a downstream beneficial effect. So I think that would be a great area. If anybody's listening to this who is doing this kind of research, remember to to give the kudos where it's properly due. Uh, what do you think? Do you think that that sounds like- I like that. Yes, uh, it would be interesting. Uh, just kind of thinking off the top of my head here, most conspiracy theories that are revealed to be true, that is, you know, the, the, the government was up to something or you know, Reagan did this or Nixon did that. It's usually journalists that expose it. Now, why would it be journalists? Well, in part, that's their job. Right. Um, but they're also pretty suspicious. The journalists I know, they're, they're good skeptics, right? Because they, right. they've been bullshitted so many times right. by so many people. They just start off with a default position. I think this guy's lying right now. <laughs> we'll, we'll see if we can uh, default the truth, but not, not, not easily, right? So they're suspicious of co corporations and government agencies. So it could be that kind of paranoia. Uh, I got this idea of constructive conspiracism from Jared Diamond, who, who called this constructive paranoia. His example was when he was in Papua New Guinea with his hunter-gatherer buddies out um, birding and, and doing anthropology stuff and whatnot. They would, uh, he would, he once suggested, well, let's just pitch our tent under a tree. And they're going, oh, no, 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 no. We don't sleep under trees. Well, why not? Well, one of them might fall, fall on you in the middle of the night. He's like, oh, come on. What are the chances of that? Anyway, so then he started doing some calculations over the months and years and realized that, you know, pretty much every night I hear a tree fall somewhere. And, you know, if I'm sleeping out under the tree, you know, under the trees, 365 nights a year, I'll be dead within a couple of years. If it's only like one in a thousand, I'll be dead in three years. Exactly. Right. So there's kind of a logic to being a little paranoid, especially in an environment where there's many, many ways for things to go wrong. Right. right. So I have a discussion of the negativity bias, you know, why uh, losses hurt twice as much oh, as yes. gains feel good, loss aversion. But in general, we notice negative things. We have more uh, words for negative emotions than positive emotions. You know, that negative, uh, say, comments on social media stand out way more than positive ones yes. do. You know, you'd have to have like 100 likes to counter the two dislikes you got yeah. right in your kind of how it feels, you know, that feeling like, you know, I'll post something, I'll have like a hundred really nice comments and then some asshole, who is this guy that exactly. wrote that? I am going to get this guy. I'm going to focus. I'm going to spend the next two hours thinking about this. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. wait a minute, there's no proportionality. This is insane. So, but the idea is that we evolved um, this negativity bias because it pays to err, make more type one errors. Okay, it, was, it wasn't going to take me out of the gene pool, but it might've. Yeah. And even if it's a low probability event, you know, if the risk is death, I better pay attention to it. I actually use the evolutionary roots of the negativity bias in a paper that I published a few years ago with one of my former doctoral students. It's a paper published in uh, Evolution and Human Behavior, which is arguably the the, the top, mm -hmm. you know, evolution yeah. journal. And it was a paper where we looked at the framing effect uh, but within the mating domain. And so y you may know what it is, of course, uh, Michael, but for, for our listeners. So the framing effect would be if I say uh, three out of five dentists recommend this toothpaste, it's the same as saying two out of five don't. 
And so, and yet people will judge the positively framed information as superior to the negatively framed. So we took this idea, which was originally, you know, the, the framing effect comes from Conrad and Tversky. And we said, well, let's look at what happens specifically within the mating domain, because it's an evolutionarily relevant domain. It's a domain specific context mm. and see whether men or women are more likely to succumb to the framing effect within the mating domain. And we theorize, mm. and that's exactly what we found, that within the mating domain, women would be more likely to succumb to the framing effect because of the negatively framed information. It looms mm. larger in their mind. So for example, if I say seven out of 10 of this guy's acquaintance think he's intelligent, would you go out with him on a date on a scale of one to 10? Versus if I said three out of 10 don't think that he's intelligent, well, both those two statements are exactly in their iso they're isomorphically equivalent, they're logically equivalent, but yet negative information looms much louder in the mind of women when they are navigating mating decisions, mm. precisely because the costs and benefits of making a poor choice are are much more, uh, you know, well, they're much more costly to women. So we exactly use the negativity bias, parental investment theory to demonstrate the domain specificity of the framing effect. So that was kind of a a, a, a terrible <laughs> version of what Kahneman and Tversky were studying. Yeah, that that is interesting because that that's what the uh, David Buss and the evolutionary psychologists talk about with, oh, he was just in his latest book talking about these uh, massive data sets they have from these dating sites, yeah. you know, swipe left or swipe right. I always forget which is which, but, you know, it's like, uh, you know, if you, uh, women will swipe like only 6% of the yeah. time yeah, yeah, yeah. for you know somebody they'd go out with men it was like 94 percent yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> and then he had some other funny really funny uh statistics like how many dates would you have to go on before you'd be intimate with this person and for women the average i think was seven and for men it was less seven than minutes one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly right it was less than one so for every guy that said i have to go on two dates there was some guy that said why go out on a date <laughs> let's just have sex exactly <laughs> yeah. Precisely. and then one of my gay friends told me a little funny joke you know what what do lesbians do on their second date they they get a u-haul trailer and they move in what do what do gay guys do on a second date what's a second date yeah <laughs> exactly well you know I, so there's a there's a logic to the uh, again risk-taking women are far, far more risk-taking for the all the reasons that you write about of of you know different gamete sizes and commitment to yeah. uh pregnancy and risks and physical violence and stds and you know just goes on and on they just have to be choosier and so and i so I, I suppose the negativity bias would probably i bet women are more focused on the negativity bias uh, do you think across the board or is it just when it's related to mating uh, uh, well no that that's a great question i think that depending on the domain in which we are testing the framing effect i can expect there to be no differences or differences in one direction or the other. That's the beauty of evolutionary psychology. It allows me to assort the patterns mm -hmm. of differences. So for example, I think if it were, let's say this burger is 90% fat-free versus this burger is 10% fat, I would expect that there'd be no sex differences in the proclivity to succumb to the framing effect mm. within the food domain, because in that domain, I don't expect that there would have been a sex-specific difference in terms of my desire to seek fatty foods. Both men and women have equally faced that as an important looming problem. When it mm. comes to mate choice, then I expect it. So, so it would depend on the domain, and I, and I think that that's really the insight of the paper of the paper in question that I mentioned to you, which is, you know, most of 
well, not most, all of the Kahneman and Tversky stuff really, I mean, they're they're brilliant. They're, they're, they're heroes of mine. They're wonderful. But they really did all that stuff void of any, I mean, they might have thrown away the word evolutionary here or there, but it's really not informed via an evolutionary lens. So imagine if you were to take all of their work and now ask for those ultimate questions, those ultimate why. So don't just spend 40, 50 years showing that homo economicus is false. Tell us why the brain's architecture is the way that it is. And so that's why I kind of, in a sense, eventually not lost interest, but even though I had been trained within the Kahneman and Tversky model, then I switched, I veered right and went into mm. you know evolutionary land because I found it ultimately unsatisfying to just repeatedly show that we don't adhere to this mythical unicorn called Homo economicus. We get it, mm. we're, but we're not Homo economicus. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to ask one more question about this uh, fantastic book. People, go out and get it. <laughs> it's coming out next Tuesday, right? Tuesday, yeah. Tuesday, okay. So get it. But So one more question, and then I want to talk about a few other things that are not necessarily about yeah. the book. Uh, I haven't read the book, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that if I didn't know you, I'm going to guess that most of the example of conspiratorial thinking are going to be those bad, nasty MAGA people. Am I right so far or am I wrong? Uh, well, I'm pretty, well, I'm, I'm not sure I, I, I got the, the angle of the question. Well, what I, I mean, so let me, let me rephrase yeah. it. For, forgive me if I was good. Like th there's going to be either an implicit or explicit position that one side of the political aisle is more likely to succumb to crazy conspiratorial thinking than the other. Is that true? Or you're not arguing that any person, irrespective of where they stand on the political spectrum, is just as likely to engage in conspiratorial things. Exactly. The, the latter. I'm not I'm not arguing that the mega people are worse. In oh, fact, I have okay. a, I have a whole section on all the different I was just going to try to pull it out and read it for you here of all the different um political rigged election conspiracy theories. Uh let's see. Hang on, let me go find under Clinton here. Uh, Hillary Rodham also rigged election. Con yeah, here we go. Let me look under rigged. I'll just read this to you because it's very amusing because people forget how often that uh, Democrats think elections were rigged. How about Stacey Abrams? Here we go. Uh, ever since the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections, much has been made over the conspiracy theories that the Russians meddled in American politics. And then I go on and on about all that stuff. Okay. Uh, let's see. At least that's the conspiracy theory promulgated by Democrats who, when they were confident Hillary Clinton would win in 2016, defended the electoral process against Trump's fears that it was already rigged against him. After Trump won, Democrats decided the election was rigged after all, but the results of the Mueller investigation and the matter of Russian collusion did not pan out as they had hoped. Uh, let's see. Um, when liberals occupied the White House in 2008 under, in 2016 under Obama, Democratic conspiracists were quiescent, while Republican conspiracists dialed up their conspiracy meter. And I, I, I go through all that. And then the Democrats, um, all the, let's see, they thought that, let's see, 20, uh, it was both, both, both Bushes, 2000 and 2004, there were election uh, uh, shenanigans in Ohio and this and so. So basically, everybody does it. Well, you the know, only thing that's different now about the mega people is that usually the losing side gives up after a while and then focuses on the next election, which hopefully the GOP is doing with the midterms coming up. Like, right. you know, but Trump, can, he just can't let it go uh, for whatever reason. But I but, think that is a reflection of his, you know, in, immense narcissism, right? I can't yes, lose. Yes. 
Yes. So it's it's just it's part of his the the architecture of his personality, correct? I I think it, he's dark triad, right? Yeah, narcissism, exactly. psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. Because exactly. I don't think anybody anymore in the GOP, if they ever believed it, believes it. The the only reason anybody would say it was just to get his uh, endorsement for uh, their next election, something like that. Um, well, so yeah. ju just to 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 close that point, I I have I have immense respect for your. Uh, you know, ability to be impartial because it, while I, you know, I've known you for a long time and I know that you're a very fair and honest uh, author. I, I just, I just had an intuition that most of the examples that you would come up with would be of the Alex Jones MAGA type. And so it, it assuages my concerns that you were this fair. Oh, so well, historically, yeah, I mean, there's nothing new what we're experiencing now. I mean, when, when Rome burned, there were conspiracy theories about right. what Nero was really doing. You know, did he make it happen on purpose, my hop, or did he let it happen on purpose, right. lie hop? Same thing with Bush, right? Um, and I, I actually introduced a new term, cow hop, capitalized on what happened happened on purpose. So there were there were accusations against Roosevelt that he knew that the Japanese were going to bomb Pearl Harbor and they had some you know after the fact hindsight biased documents going oh look here's a piece of intel saying the Japanese may attack Hawaii. Yeah, well they also had intel saying the Japanese would attack California, they attacked Alaska and the Philippines and on and on, right? So it's only hindsight like the August 9th 2001 memo from Condoleezza Rice, Al-Qaeda to strike on U.S. soil. Yeah, but that was one of 10,000 pieces of intel. You know, only after the fact, you go, well, that's the one they should have known. Right. So that's not uh, fair. But but politicians do capitalize on what happened. Roosevelt wanted to get us into the war. He wanted to support Great Britain against the Nazis. And they were not happy about what the Japanese were doing in China, but we couldn't get involved until they did something to us, capitalized on what happened on purpose. Right. Same thing with Bush. You know, we, we know he wanted to, to go into Iraq and need an excuse. And so he, he got the excuse. And so it's it, it's maybe not as cynical, but maybe even more cynical on a different level of what politicians do. It's not a top down uh, conspiracy theory like you know smoking man behind closed doors running the world no it's not like that it's actually more nefarious because it's really hard to do anything about it or spot it until yeah. after the fact all right very cool okay so let's switch to more general questions you know one of the things that i like to do if if i have the opportunity to do so is to try to inspire some of the, the, the viewers and listeners uh now you are you know, by by any metric, an extraordinarily prolific and successful author. How many books is it now? 18? 15. 15. Yeah. So, you know, by any measure, 15 books is a very successful career. I think most of your books have been very successful. What are, you know, two, three, four pieces of advice, right? Everybody wants to be an author, right? Everybody starts off life as you know, I'm I'm the next great novelist. I just didn't write one. I'm the next great screen screenwriter. I didn't <laughs> write one. I'm the, right. So uh, there are tons of people who are sitting here saying, hey, you know, I I have things to say. I want to write a book. G give us your best advice, Doctor Shermer. Do you, do you know the the quip from Christopher Hitchens? Everyone has a book in them, and in most cases, that's where it should stay. <laughs> <laughs> that's why he's Christopher Hitchens. I'm sorry to say that's probably true in the same way it would be true that everybody thinks they they, they could go on American Idol and win. But let's and, assume that we're only answering the people who are talented enough yeah, and have important yeah, okay, things to say. Right, so let's yeah, get right. let, we can get well, rid of that. So, in general, find just find something you're passionate about and that you like doing. In my case, I like writing. Yeah. I like writing enough that if I don't do it, I feel anxious. Like, oh, I gotta, I gotta. Exactly. Get I completely get what you're saying, and I'll add to it in a second. Go ahead. 
in in the same way that I, I lucked out and found a sport that I like cycling, right? So uh, it doesn't take much motivation at all for me to get up and get out and go ride with my friends or just by myself. I, I just enjoy it. Whereas let's say, even if it's close, a stationary bike in a gym when I'm traveling, I can't stand it. I hate it. It's all I could do to just even last 15 minutes. So it's, it's the key is finding something you really enjoy doing. And then you'll just do it without having to, you know, write down goals and motivate yourself with various rewards. You'll, the, the internal reward is it's all you need. Right. So then specifically for books, you, um, it's a tough business. Um, uh, people ask a lot. It's well, you need an agent. Well, how do I get an agent? Well, you know, you got to write an agent or call them. And well, can you do that for me? <laughs> no, I can't. Uh, you know, you, I'm sure you get that too. But oh yeah. Um, uh, but the problem is, if you look at it from the publishers or the agents perspective, you know, they get hundreds and hundreds of proposals. Probably the big houses, thousands of proposals. Yeah. You know, which ones do they? roll the dice on. It's pretty risky. Most books don't do that well. Even the ones you expect to do really well, they don't do that well. And, yeah. you, you know, it's, you know, the, to me, the, who makes the bestseller list is kind of almost a paranormal supernatural mystery, right? I mean, I'm not sure anybody really knows. And there's, you know, there's of course the handful of cases that stand out as successes. You go, yeah, that makes sense. JK Rowling, whatever, Malcolm Gladwell, I don't know. But, but, but what about all the, the counter, factuals like you know they expected you know so-and-so's biography to be huge i think it was um uh, uh what's her name uh whoopi goldberg i think had a bogger they paid like a million dollars for it and you know just sold nothing so it's just hard to predict and yeah. so in general though you need a topic that people will be interested in like just think of you're the salesman at the publishing house and you got to go pitch the buyers at barnes and noble what what is your pitch about this book well, you know, they're not going to read it. They, they, they may not even read the paragraph describing it. Just tell me what this book is about. Oh, it's about conspiracies. Oh, I like conspiracy. Oh, okay, we'll buy it. Or it's about, you know, whatever, some biography of some obscure person. Oh, I'm not interested in that. You know, that's all. That's You just got a, a, you know, a quick hit is all you get. And then so, and then you have to, you know, write it in a way that's compelling for people to read because they won't read it. Otherwise, they won't get past the first couple pages. And even if, or just like the cover, what's the title and the subtitle and what's your one paragraph description on the inside uh, jacket flap? You know, the, 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 the this thing on yes. the dust jacket here, you know, that, that may be the only thing anybody reads it, there on the, uh, on the Barnes and Noble, they pick it up and go, if that doesn't compel them, they're probably not going to buy it. Right. So you really have to think like, uh, well, a behavioral economist, let's put it that way. Yeah. So, so you give <laughs> Again, proving that marketing is life and life is marketing. Uh, but to your to your first point, when you said, you know, you, you have to have kind of an, a need to want to do this. I often tell people that my need to write or more generally to create, because sometimes I can satiate, I, I can satisfy the need by just doing a 10 minute sad truth clip. But but writing has this almost, you know, this 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 kind of divine metaphysical quality where I now enter this universe where I'm in complete control of everything that's going to happen. And I really get anxious. It's been two, three, four days that I haven't written anything. I go off to a cafe and I'm writing and there is no place where I would be happier than what I'm doing exactly at that moment. And the idea that I start, I open my laptop one day and there are zero syllables on that first word document. And then a few years later, somebody sends me a copy of this book right here, sitting on a beach in Dubai or wherever. <laughs> 
what could be more magical? So I, I think mm -hmm. that if you don't have the passion that I'm just expressing right now, you're never going to be a good writer because I think that comes across, right? You have to be a good raconteur. In French, you say raconteur, storyteller. Mm -hmm. Story, not in the sense that you're confabulating, but in that you, you know how to make people sit on every syllable that you're saying. I remember at one point I was, I was speaking to an agent, which eventually I fired, and he was saying, you know, I, I'm hoping that you'll write your book in the way that you appear on Joe Rogan. And I, I exactly got what he meant, right? Because you can't go on Joe Rogan and be able to survive that exercise and get 20 million people to find you interesting if you then write like a boring anal professor. If you can't mm -hmm. make that switch, you're not going to sell books. I mean, certainly not trade books. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, yeah, for, totally. And so the and other recommendation I make is to read a lot of really good authors. Yeah. Right. Like I know a lot of social scientists that are, I don't know, maybe jealous or just baffled by uh, the success of Malcolm Gladwell. But I've read all of Gladwell's stuff. He's a great writer. He's right. a good storyteller. He's a I storyteller. Mean, exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, of course, I know he misrepresents these studies or he cites one right. study and spins off from that. But, you know, that but this is what he does. You just have to know I'm not reading a professional social scientist. I'm reading a journalist who's a great writer. And his stories are compelling, right? So that helps. And so if you read a lot of people like that, read you, Dawkins, Pinker, uh, Sam Harris, I don't know, just read you know a lot of people that are good yeah. writers, recognize good Hitchens, of course, Hitchens. Um, I, I remember, here's a good funny story. Uh, you know, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, the assassin of JFK, famously was formed his own little uh, fair play for Cuba group. You know, he, he he was part of this organization. He was the only member <laughs> anyway. And so he's out there marching and the FBI is taking pictures of him and so on. Uh, you know, fair play for Cuba. Right. So uh, about, I don't know, 15 years ago or so, Hitchens wrote an essay about uh, David Irving, the Holocaust denier. Mm. And he tried to give David a fair shot. You know, let's let's go out to lunch. And then he said, we went back to my flat. Uh, and to have coffee and, a, and whiskey and just, you know, just chit chat. And he interacted with my daughter and so on. And it, it became apparent that this guy was a hardcore anti-Semite. And so Hitchens wrote something like at this point in the conversation, I felt like anybody that would have found a fair play for Irving committee uh, needs a reality check. Right. <laughs> so I put that in my mind. I had that in my mind for the last 15 years. And then in my chapter on JFK, I pile up like page after page after page of all the evidence against Oswald. And I said, at this point, anyone that would form a fair play for Oswald committee <laughs> needs to have a reality check. Right. So I remember that little turn of phrase. I thought I want to use that. Someday. That's beautiful. <laughs> you, you, you got to know Hitchens reasonably well, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, of all the people that, you know, we both know and we've both gotten, I mean, become friends with and so on the one that i i regret the most of not having had the pleasure mm -hmm. of knowing would have been hitchens uh you, can you tell us a bit about about him in terms of things that we might not otherwise have known uh yeah well he did like to drink that's for sure i mean the first time i met him he was in la for a film review of a film called fairy tale about uh the cottonly fairy uh scam that um uh, Sherlock Holmes author, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, fell for, um, Do Doyle. Yeah. Arthur Conan Doyle. Thank uh, yeah. You. 
and is Harvey Keitel played uh, Houdini. And anyway, it was a great film. And, but, but we went out to dinner before and uh, he had contacted me because he, he liked Skeptic Magazine and what we were doing. And so we went to dinner and he ordered two whiskeys right off the bat, wow. <laughs> like five in the afternoon before the movie. Oh, <laughs> and there were many, many stories like that. One time I was on a book tour for actually the mind of the market, my book on evolutionary economics that, so I was in a, re, I was at a reason magazine function book, book event for that. And it was really loud. I was at this nightclub bar place and, and Hitchens was there and he said, Michael, why don't we go to this little place that's very quiet where they know me? So we go down <laughs> there, we walk in, it's like, oh, Mr. Hitchens, uh, the usual spot. So we, they take us back to this place that he likes to kind of hold court. And then the waiter brings two whiskeys, didn't even ask, it's two whiskeys in his water. Oh, okay. <laughs> And then he just kind of sat there like his back was to the wall and, you know, the, the restaurant's out this way and people are coming in. Oh, Christopher, hey, Hitch, you know, and they'd sit down and talk and leave and more people would come. I thought, oh, this is a life, man. This guy, he's got. But <laughs> I wonder, though, is was, I, of course, I, I never met him, so I could be completely unfair in the characterization that I'm about to share. It, was there room for anybody else to be in the conversation with him or was it? I am Christopher Hitchens and I'm holding court. I'm thinking that it might have been the latter. And I'm I'm hoping that you'll disabuse me of that uh, thought. Um, there was a little bit of that, yeah. right? It was, it, I've been around other intellectuals. I won't name them since they're still alive who, who are kind of like that. Actually, Randy, since he's gone, I mean, I, I love Randy, but I mean, he used to be, I mean, he was a professional magician and an entertainer on top of being a skeptic. But when there was like a group dinner, it was clear he was the guy that was running the dinner. I mean, it was, this is, right. I'm, and I could almost sometimes see him get uncomfortable when somebody else was, you know, riffing off and the conversation was ricocheting around the table. And he's like, hey, 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 back, it's about, here. back to me, back to me. <laughs> and again, there's a few other people that are like that. I think maybe if you're really smart and you get a lot of attention, you can't almost can't help but think, well, this is all about me, right? Yeah. Maybe there's an element of narcissism. I don't. I mean, it wasn't obnoxious because he was a great storyteller. He's like, oh, Hitch is going to tell another story. Oh, well, this will be fun. <laughs> so whenever I would do that, or with some of these other people, I won't mention. I just kind of check my own ego and go, well, fuck it. You know, I'm just going to sit here and enjoy just enjoy it. the ride. Enjoy, yeah, because what's the point? <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. Uh, okay, uh, last question, and then uh, we'll wrap it up. We'll say goodbye. Uh, are there any projects? I mean, yes, now we are trying to get this on the bestseller list, but are there any other projects that you'd like to tell us about? This is the opportunity to do so. Oh, well, you know, of course, Skeptic Magazine, we're always uh, promoting that. This is the latest issue on race. Nice. You'll like this. Our previous issue was so race matters. This one was on abortion matters. And nice. the first one of the year was on trans matters. So, so and you're the, basically dealing with non-controversial issues. That's right. <laughs> I mean, we've, we've done all these other topics to death, astrology and Bigfoot and UFOs and all that. It's like, what else is there to say? Right. So I'm looking for new topics. So that's uh, nationalism matters is the, the next one next year where I want to do something on like suicide and mental health issues and just kind of broader, you know, how can we apply rationality and empiricism uh, to any subject, not just right. fringe, you know, just anything that matters and everything matters. Uh, those right. are big topics, right? I think the next book may be my last one, although I've, <laughs> I should never really? say that. Why <laughs> no, do you I'm say just, that? I'm just kidding. Okay. It, I think, I think the conspiracy book is, is, is kind of the specific uh, subject of a broader topic, which is how do you know what's true about anything? 
Right. right? So here I'll play uh, with the, those ideas of empirical truths, political truth, empirical truths, political truths, religious truth. You know, so the story I tell is is about the resurrection, for example. Richard Dawkins and I were at this conference about science and religion, and Ken Miller was there. Ken Miller is was like the lead debunking scientist of intelligent design creationism. Right. He was the man, wrote a great book about it, and and so on. So hardcore evolutionary biologist and and so on. This is the brown biologist, correct? Yes, that's yeah, him. Yeah, he's been on my show, I believe. Yeah, he's great. He's yeah. great. But in the last, so he writes this great book debunking intelligent design creation. The last chapter is about how I'm a Catholic. And yeah. I accept Jesus as my savior and the whole yes. thing. So we're at this conference. So Richard goes down the path. Okay, Ken, let's say we have a piece of the true cross. And on the piece of the true cross is a little bit of flesh. And we could extract the DNA from the flesh of this person who was supposedly born of a virgin, right? And God is the father and so on. So the DNA has got to be different. So Ken could see where this was going. And he says, Richard, Richard, I'm not trying to say this is true, like in some empirical scientific sense. I'm just saying this is what I believe. I'm a Catholic. It's what we accept that. Like, oh, isn't it such an unsatisfying cop out to answer that way? I, I feel like it's it's kind of a conversation stopper, right? Like, what yeah. do you say? Oh, okay. But is it is it in this is it different than say I believe in uh, a regressive tax and you say, Well, I believe in a progressive tax, or I believe that immigration should be at one percent, and you say, Well, it should be at three percent. What's the right number? I don't know. Right. But that is open for debate, whereas you can't from this side of your mouth say I'm reason science man. And then from this side of your mouth say, but when it comes to my preferred fairy tales, I'm just going to jump into the pool of faith. I mean, then you, you're you're disingenuous. You're you're an intellectual hypocrite. Yes, I, that's been my attitude. But what if someone like Jordan says, I don't mean this empirically, Gad, I mean, mythically you should bear your own cross you should forgive yes. people you should you know start a life anew like being born again metaphorically and then your life improves how do you how would you respond to something like I, that i i would say then that th those are excellent edicts that are that are rooted in earthly dynamics and i don't need booga booga stuff i just don't <laughs> need it right i just i literally can actually argue evolutionarily speaking why these edicts make sense the golden rule for for human sociality to function is a great strategy to have and i don't need mm. jesus to have said it i don't need muhammad to have said it i don't need moses to have said it. it it is an indelible part of human nature it's an evolutionarily stable strategy so i would say i see no value in couching it in, in the supernatural mm. yeah I, mean, I would i would agree with that yeah there you go yeah all right, uh, Michael, <laughs> stay on the line so that we can say goodbye, uh, I mean, properly yep. offline. Okay. Uh, All right. Thank you so much. Best of luck with this book. I'm sure it'll thank be you. a smashing success. And I look thanks, forward Gad. to having you back again for the fourth time. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> All right, thanks. Cheers. All right.